0: Okay, hey, welcome, guys, to the Google Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Watson. And in today's episode, I've got the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with Booth Davis. He is the founder and managing director of Abundance Investment, which has been at the forefront of financial innovation since 2012. Creating ways for everyone to invest in green and social infrastructure. So, I've been interested and keen to to speak with for Bruce for a few months now. So, it's nice to be able to sit down to him, particularly in the current climate of everything that's going on around the world. Um, mm. So, yeah, thank you, Bruce, for, um, for agreeing to have this chat with me.
1: That's no problem. I'm happy to do it. Yeah.
0: Perfect. So, it seems like the uh, thing that's on everyone's lips at the moment that is affecting everyone around the world is the coronavirus. So, it'd be interesting to Get your thoughts on that, and particularly the massive impact that's happening on on finance at the moment.
1: Yeah, um, I guess we're still working out what that is. Um, so I think the immediate impact is of the virus is it sort of demonstrates uh, where the sensitivities are in our finance system. And and if I'm honest, if it wasn't Corona, it might have been something else that that kind of woke us up what is really going on with our money and how it works. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that this has really illustrated is that a lot of what we sort of take for granted is very much running on a just-in-time basis when it comes to money, um, which you might sort of see as analogous to the way that people manage their money day-to-day in their own, in their own domestic lives, so outside of making investments or companies and all of that. Um, and, and actually, companies are no different. So I think what sort of perhaps surprised politicians is the speed with which companies have gone from being everything is fine and everything is, if you like, green light to, you know, a complete stop. And we've never really been here before. I don't think we've ever seen a crisis like this where both demand and supply are, are, are constricted in the way that they are so suddenly. Um, and businesses didn't have a plan for this. <clears throat> and they didn't really and they weren't really asked to have a plan so i think what we're learning is that whilst yeah there's there's an immediate response to what is a cash crisis fundamentally it's about cash there's a bigger question here about the resilience of our infrastructure and the resilience of our society to these types of shocks and whether or not we took it for granted that we could just respond from a standing start and Uh, For us, I think I've sort of approached this perhaps slightly differently in that we've been looking at the the risk, the very real risk of this type of shock, not necessarily a virus, uh, an pandemic, as we've got, but other types of shocks which would have an equivalent impact on the economy uh, that relate to climate change and the climate emergency. So, you know, you don't you don't want to have any kind of situation where you kind of say, I told you so. But in this situation, what we've been saying about infrastructure and what we've been saying about the need for long-term investment, well, this is what we meant. You know, What we meant was you, you invest in infrastructure for things which might happen and you, don't, you can't just go from nowhere to having something when it comes to infrastructure when things start to go wrong. And arguably that is the worst time to try and build and develop things um, much better is to be prepared for different uh, things which might happen i.e we start to actually understand that investment acts as a form of insurance and so yeah that 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 piece for me has been quite interesting so you know aside from the human cost which is terrible and tragic you're one resp- you know then you can get very caught up in that and you know, people are acting very scared and, and they're doing things which, you know, are ultimately probably not good for the whole, whether whether or not they're even beneficial to the one. But on the other side, it is, well, how do we learn from this? What You know, you should be alive and awake in these situations to learn from them. And when we get through it, as I think we will, come out the other side in a position that is stronger rather than weaker. So yeah. I think, you know, that... That, for me, is kind of you know, where we're thinking anyway. You know, from Abundance's point of view, we're an investment company that thinks over the 20, 30-year time horizon with our investors. We're looking at, well, what does this mean for that approach? Is it more relevant, less relevant? How should we think about that? Um, and fundamentally, you feel that actually this is the right way we should be thinking about our money. Um, but I think the other, the other part is, well, then also, how do we support businesses that are in crisis right now? Um, And I lived, you know, I was thinking about money and talking about money back in 2008 when the crisis happened. This is far worse. As far as I'm concerned, it's not a crisis of finance. It's a crisis in the economy itself. And finance will be able, and therefore actually finance is in a position to do something about it. Whereas before, the financial crisis meant that we didn't really have a way to help ourselves. Though actually we do. We have a finance system that is still operating, able to operate With enormous support from central banks but it is still operating whereas before we had a finance system that wasn't functioning and that was causing a very different set of of problems.
0: Yeah it's really interesting to get that insight from you. So do you see much impact on what you're doing or like you said you know you're looking for the long term in terms of 20 30 30 year projects people's investments and obviously you know you invest in green and social infrastructure which is definitely the way the world is changing and you're investing in the Mm -hmm. new technology rather than the old sort of paradigm the system that is eventually dying out but it appears that in a lot of ways those companies are just holding on for dear life to to take what they can and make so many more whatever trillions in in that term when um, Mm. you're so interested on on your insight on
1: that. Well, I mean, in in the immediate term, no, there's obviously a slowdown in activity. So we're looking at investments. We're looking at what investments we can actually bring forward to keep things moving uh, whilst a lot of things can't be done. You know, there's no point trying to set up a construction site. You know, that would not be the responsible thing to do where parts and, uh, technology come from overseas again. That isn't going to happen in in the next sort of two to three months, uh, and possibly in the next six months. Um, so we're looking at well, what investments can we bring that don't require that sort of impact? They are uh, things that can be done. They're positive things that can be done, but they don't make a, a bad situation worse just for the sake of doing something. Um, and I think we've got a couple of things there. We're, we're particularly looking at sustainable food production, which is an obvious, very immediate need. Uh, in the UK, based in the UK. So how do we build the UK's resilience in terms of food production? And um, the the other pit we're looking at is around broadband. So where I am actually is based out in the Cotswolds. I'm very much experiencing the joys of rural broadband when normally when I'm here on my own, it's fine. But there's an awful lot of people have turned up (laughs) in the Cotswolds region uh, for obvious reasons. And the bandwidth has disappeared. So um, that that that's another area we're looking at, which is rural broadband and how that can be delivered. I, I think that the, the sort of the third one actually was looking at well, the the who are the kind of the actors that are going to get involved in rebuilding and and also dealing with the problem that hasn't gone away despite what is going on at the moment, which is climate change. And that is really about working with local authorities, um, particularly local councils and. Giving them mechanisms to raise money through their citizens that can be uh, put directly into projects in their local community, um, and those types of bonds are quite different to what we've done before. So, when what we've been we've been doing in the main is raising debt uh, investments for companies. So, as an investor, you're lending money to that company, and they're paying you a return for the risk that you're taking. Um, that's, you know, if something goes wrong, what do I get? What do I get for my money? When we're lending to local authorities, it's a very different sort of risk, much lower risk, um, much longer term type of investments that local authorities make. But importantly, they do make investments and they're looking to let, take the lead on things like the climate emergency, but they, and they're almost certainly going to be on the front line of, of COVID-19. So what we're, th- we're going to do is say, how can we help local authorities um, do two things? One, raise finance for the projects that they need to do in a way that is cost effective, versus, say, borrowing from central government, and secondly, do so in a way that engages citizens in the solution and shows that at a local level they can play a part. Um, And so we're hoping to bring you know, still that those will still come to the market in the next two, three months from various councils who are, despite the challenges of where they are, are are mindful of the fact that this is a temporary thing um, and there are much bigger problems that they need to keep moving on not just focus on the here and now
0: yeah well one thing's for sure at the moment that the environment is certainly benefiting um, from (laughs) the slowdown yeah I've been looking at the pictures that are coming out of China and Italy and even the UK the heat map in terms of the release of CO2 and stuff and it's um, and even in you know you've got pictures around in LA where the smog has cleared and the, yeah. the clear. so obviously this isn't necessarily the, the route towards it we wanted it um but it can definitely act as a bit of a wake-up call
1: well it definitely shows us what life is like when we reduce pollution and i think because i think people get normalized to it they you know i used to live in london i moved out because i got ill from pollution i got pneumonia uh not, not the current one, but a couple of years ago, I got pneumonia, and it was almost certainly caused by damage from from pollution um, that weakened my immune system. Because uh, the doctors couldn't work out any other way that I would have got so ill, and I think you know what what people are going to see is that actually the idea that life being different <clears throat> uh, if we respond to the climate emergency doesn't mean that life is is going to get worse. Um, and the idea that the only way we can move forward is to move ever faster and bigger and use more resources, maybe that will be challenged too. So I, I sort of agree that there is some initi- you know, temporary benefit to the CO2 budget. Probably almost certainly uh, energy usage is right down. But that doesn't really help us because unless we're building Still building the stuff that we need to replace fossil fuels it 's merely a you know it 's a sticking plaster at best, and it may not even be that useful if if governments just decide when they turn back on the taps that they they kind of forget about green issues yeah, absolutely. so we need to keep that at the forefront of people' i don 't think that will be the case. I think they will see this as an opportunity to to renew infrastructure to reset, but I think the biggest reset is for ourselves as a society to say well, hang on a minute, what were the things we really valued before the virus? And in a post-viral world, do we still have the same values that we had before this happened? And I would hope that we don't. I would hope that this teaches us that a kind of, um, I'm all right, Jack, and this will be fine. Um, You know, yes, some people won't make it attitude can trip you up in the end because the one thing about Corona is it doesn't respect wealth. It doesn't respect status. It doesn't respect, well, it would appear not to respect royalty. Um, and you know, it levels everybody. And suddenly I, 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 I sort of felt this, you were walking, you know, if you were walking past a homeless person two weeks ago and didn't do anything about it, thinking that that person had somehow got there under their own steam under their own, by their own fault, you can now kind of relate to the idea that you yourself were probably only three weeks away from being homeless. You know, there are people who are, I I have friends who don't know how they, you know, if they didn't have these government um, actions coming in now would be homeless at the end of this month. And so, and they were well, well paid people who were living pretty positive, you know, go getting lives and you take one, little bit out of the Jenga pile and the whole thing collapses so I think that that for me should be a wake-up call for people that our resilience our sense of self-resilience is often uh subject to some pretty strong confirmation biases that we, we we just can't imagine ourselves being in that situation and maybe now maybe now we can actually do that because we're in it I don't know, you know millions of people you don't want to celebrate that I certainly you know I'm All businesses are having to make decisions and struggle at the moment to get through this, but you, there's no point going through all this pain if we don't learn something from it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I think it could be quite interesting in a post viral world. Yeah. All bets are off as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um,
0: I think as well, if it was, say it lasted just a week, and then everything mm. jump back to normal. There'd be an effect on stuff like shares would drop, but they will soon be back up and people yep. might be off work for a little bit. But because it appears to be a sustained period, it's going to give us a lot of reflection time. And I think we'll decide yes. what is it that we actually need in our life. We have lots of wants, but actually what's important. And, and I think mm. that us having that slowing down effect can help us to reflect on stuff. Now that have, might have a major effect on the economy eventually, but it might create a better economy of us
1: um, well i think at the moment you've got this opportunity that the economy just went down by 25%. i mean that's what they're saying. is the effect on our gross domestic domestic product for this quarter 25% reduction that's bigger than the great depression in the 1930s. Wow. um so um now we're also seeing stimulus and and government interventions on a scale that wasn't done in the 1930s so they've learned the lesson of the depression. You know, people didn't act. They thought it would sort itself out because um, there was an ideology at the time perhaps not so different to certain elements of our own political spectrum right now who think we should just let it run its course and come out the other side stronger. Actually, that doesn't it doesn't work like that because you lose people, you lose skills, you lose people, lose their homes and they don't bounce back from that. They end up in whatever safety nets we have left and I think this time... The Government's realized you can't do that. you have to intervene um, and've intervened well we'll see how big that intervention is, but they 've intervened pretty massively um, but I think for people it's realizing that that insurance policy that that element where the state steps in, that element where actually your public role your public citizen role uh is you know as it re- becomes you are a recipient of help from the state um i, I think that's going that's going to jar a lot of people they're going to they're going to they i was running a focus group last week actually with some people about the talking about the investing in local authorities and one of the things they said was how angry they used to get about their council tax bill all the things in their council tax bill they never use and i think now people are going to realize that actually some of those things were there not because you didn't need them right then, but you, you will need them now. <laughs> um, and so I, maybe people are starting to get a little bit more of a conscience about a social conscience about this consciousness, maybe if not a conscience. Um, and that for me would be a good thing. You know, there's, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound like I don't think that what is, you know, as someone myself who's gone through pneumonia and ended up in hospital, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. um, and it is a horrible thing. Um, you you don't want that to be the way that we learn our lessons, but it is what is happening. It's a reality that's out there, and I think we should learn from it.
0: Yeah, definitely learn from it. And in talking about just actually the financial system as a whole, you say we learned hmm. some lessons from two thousand eight, but you still still think there's some fundamental issues anyway with the way money's created and the redistribution of wealth and you know inequality and you know the way the system. Yep. It almost feels like it's set up to support the corporations more so than actually the everyday people who are the ones that are, you know, keep the economy going on a whole.
1: Yeah. Um, what did we learn from the crisis? I think we learned from the financial crisis that we can't trust financial institutions to regulate themselves. And I think one of the reasons we're probably able to respond better to this quite different sort of crisis, a real economy crisis is that our financial institutions are in better shape than they were 12 years ago. That's for sure. They have better capital buffers and reserves. Central banks are better connected to them and have more control over the way markets work. Um, And to some extent, because we did such a huge bailout of the financial system, the concept of bailing out the real world is essentially harder to, to sort of rebuff if you were of, of that political persuasion. I mean, I think in America, they're having a very different debate to where we are here. Um, and there's still people saying we should just, you know, we shouldn't damage the economy. We shouldn't damage corporations and share prices and so on. Well, you know, we're not really having that debate here to the same extent, um, except maybe around airlines. But I think the, the, the thing that we it, it does sort of show for people is that they, however wealthy they are, and however financially independent they think they are, they're still part of a financial system that is both public and private. And that the the public parts of the financial system are as important to your well-being as the private parts. And what we've sort of done over the period of time, and, and probably reversed somewhat since 2008, was a process where we were putting the creation of money through credit, the distribution of money, i.e. through earnings and shares and investments, into the private sector increasingly. And the public sector was playing less of a role in terms of creating money and less of a role in terms of distributing the proceeds of the economy. And I think we, we're we now in a position where maybe that process will go into reverse. So it was sort of in limbo, I think it's fair to say, since 2008. We sort of stopped the rot of privatization of money, but we didn't do an awful lot to push it in the other direction. I think now we're in a position maybe where the public sectors or the public state, I don't know how quite how you draw those distinctions, role in money and how it works is going to come to the fore again. Because essentially, we've just nationalized our bond markets. We just nationalized almost, not quite, nationalised our share markets. So, you know, a lot of the assets that are out there are now owned by central banks. And they've done that for a really good reason. They want to put money into people's hands. They want to put money into people's pockets so they don't stop spending and the economy doesn't grind to a a crashing halt. But in doing so, you know, you're then saying, well, it's now the state, effectively, that runs the corporate debt market, (laughs) which is... Uh, that's a bizarre situation to be in but it is where we are um um, and then you sort of say well what are the controls and the systems that we have to make the people like in the bank of england who are now massive asset owners in the economy responsible to us as a democracy how do we hold them accountable except through you know and, and at the moment that is literally only through parliament so yeah, there's going to be some interesting things that fall out of this. But I think you've, you've seen that shift. I mean, we've probably seen, I don't know, a trillion or two trillion worth of assets go onto central bank's balance sheets in the space of a week. That's enormous amounts. Um, it, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, maybe it's not that big, but it, that's bigger than the bailouts of the financial system. We've seen bigger action than we did in the first, days of the financial system crash and everyone's nobody's batted an eyelid (laughs) you know um for this phrase you know we will do what it takes has become normalized when that was said the first time it was shocking when Draghi said it at the ecb when with the euro debt crisis we will do what it takes and it stopped the market rot. Well, he sort of set the precedent now. So now when things go wrong, we are looking to the state to solve it through whatever mechanisms they have.
0: Yeah. Interesting times. I think because everyone is being affected. So even go back to the 2008 crisis, maybe a Mm. lot of people, it was only affecting them if they actually turned on the news, their day to day would, they could still go out and get what they wanted. Most people's jobs weren't affected you know but now every single one of us is going to feel that, is feeling the effect of this not just financially mm. but our movements everything you know social the way we can interact with people so i'd love yeah. to think that when we do come out of this and we will come out of it whether it's in a few months time or longer that because we've seen how much it's affected us then we will you know hold as you say corporations and the government more accountable for, for things rather than just thinking oh you know it doesn't matter and because everyone mm isn 't going to be getting distracted by all things in life like football or any any other things which can tend to keep you busy at the weekend there's a lot there 's going to be a lot of spotlight now on the governments and they, i don 't think they'll, they really have to um, really have to step up and I think they are to some extent, but i 'm um, interested to see because I know we 're speaking about this on the, I think it's the twenty fifth of March and mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some extra um, support coming out for say the self employed and stuff like that because I know there 's a lot of discussion has been discussion. It's been in the background for a while about universal basic income. And mm. that's kind of almost really comes to the forefront, even though it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. But it's really getting come out. What's your thoughts
1: on that? Well, I mean, in effect, we've, we're, we're kind of doing it. And it looks like the usual, universal basic income is two and a half grand a, year, a month. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's not, it's not that, is it? It's not a guaranteed payment to everybody. But I think it is, um, well... We'll see. I, I saw some interesting rhetoric shifts today and yesterday. So yesterday, the news broke around the self-employed help, which, you know, for a lot of people is a pressing issue. They feel like they've been left out. It's 5 million workers in the UK. And, um, you know, no one seemed to be thinking about what they needed to do. Um, and so there was a sort of push out that, you know, there is an amendment being pushed through, I think, by the Liberal Democrats, so Ed Davey though, uh, is leading it to the coronavirus bill which would provide you know self-employed and freelancers with similar protections to what is being given to the employed what i've since heard is a lot of talk around how complicated it is to be able to deliver that and how expensive it might be and i think well that you know to some extent i think politicians have learned a little bit you know that that they they have to respond in a different way to this crisis but that that is old language that's that's the language of, well, we can't risk the, you know, public finances. We can't, you know, fundamentally at the moment, if we don't do this, we won't have public finances to come back to. So the idea that that is literally like, uh, you know, someone who won't lend a mate some money and and then finds out that actually they needed them for something else in the future. It is, it is very short term view. Um, And I think, we will see whether those lessons have been learnt. whether people can leave their ideologies at the door, you know, at the door doorway and step into something different in terms of the way we need to be thinking. Um, and I, you know, we've seen it in terms of the, and the coronavirus measures, you know, this idea that somehow we were constraining liberty by allowing people to get infected with a virus, which when you actually say it out loud, is a stupid thing to think, (laughs) but um, perhaps they hadn't said it out loud until they did. And then they realized just how bad that sounded. (laughs) Um, And I'm hearing the same kind of ideology around this bailout. Um, So let's see. Um, But I think the the core of it though, I think ultimately they won't, this requires a complete rewrite of what you might consider to be the social contract. And the social contract is that you know as the state the state's role in supporting you and enabling your life and vice versa and, and and what you give back to it and a fundamental shift therefore in what we consider to be sensible use of public money from probably a context if this had been a limited effect, let's say that it well, that it was a a virus that only targeted a segment of the population rather than the whole population, maybe people wouldn't be feeling so generous. Um, So yes, I think that's going to be a kind of interesting psychological shift that will develop into a political one, but I don't know yet that our political masters have quite woken up to what that means. Um, And what it means for them as politicians. You know, the things on which they base their knowledge and power have been completely blown apart. So, yeah, but I think, you know, if you spent your life trying to get to that point and then you get there and you find out it's not what you thought it was, it takes a little while to adjust your set.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. We're in uncharted water at the moment, so <clears> we'll see how this all... Uh, pans out but it's definitely going to have ripple effects that's going to go on for generations and potentially it can be positive uh, ripple effects because you know and whether this is you know who knows like you know you work all your work and we'll get onto this a lot more you know in the green technologies and stuff and how crucial Mm -hmm. they are because you know we don't want to at some point this be a kind of like a, a test run for for something made even more major in the future complete ecological collapse of some sort because yep. uh, at the moment, you know, the, what this is affecting, it's affecting human beings. It's not kind of affecting the, us being able to grow food. It's not being able to affect, you know, generally stuff like that. It's affecting us. But if something else comes in that really mm. has a knock-on effect, then hopefully the lessons we can learn from this, we can put them into place for the future. And well,
1: I think the thing that, because people often, I think, frame climate change in terms of the impact on the environment, um but in reality it's an impact on humans and so the idea that you know we can ignore it because nature will absorb it or we, we will mitigate ourselves to the changes is to kind of overestimate our resilience and um and perhaps to think that on on my own as, a, as an individual and maybe i'm a a, a a successful individual, I don't know who that person is who thinks that they can survive climate change. But I think, fundamentally, if society breaks down because of it, a lot of the things you take for granted that enable the world you've created will disappear. Um, and so, you know, for us on that on that green side, it's been relatively hard to make the case for green investment up until the point, and and the sort of tipping point was when, you know, countries like the UK signed into law the need to go to net zero um, by 2050. When, when we signed that into law and we had Extinction Rebellion and, and so on, um, really, really telling us this is an emergency and, and, and putting themselves in harm's way to make the point, that we started to realise that actually when you kind of went oh, well, what does that mean for me? Actually, it's pretty negative for you if you don't do anything about it. So, so we've gone from where green investment was seen as a sort of nice-to-have ethical choice to being a fundamental choice. And actually, the ethical choice is not to do it now. I.e., The ethical choice is to ignore it, and that's a negative ethics. It's a, It's the ethics of selfishness or short-termism or not willing to take responsibility for your actions. So we've gone from a world where taking action was somehow you being going against the grain to being taking no action being going against the grain. And I think that's still filtering through in terms of what we're seeing for green investment. But I think it's generally very positive. But I think we, we we've we've got to make sure that where we are now doesn't take the momentum out of that. That we don't go back to the world and go, woof Well, we got through that. Um, You know, we've learned some lessons from it. And then we forget all of it when it comes to climate change. Because I think if we do that, no, no, we haven't learned from this crisis. And you're right, bigger and nastier things are going to happen in the future that will teach us that lesson. Um, And we will be less well prepared for it. Um, You only have to look, I mean, today, I think, uh, it's a sunny day, 25% of our power is coming from solar today. Uh, another 20% is coming from wind. And um, despite the warnings that that would mean we couldn't turn our lights on or something, everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the the grid can take it. Strange. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're kind of, and I think that's the other thing people are beginning to realise. We are actually already starting to live in that green future. And it's actually not that bad. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not being made jobless. People aren't, you know we were actually making progress so yeah there's I, I i hope that we keep that momentum going i think because we've come so
0: far like you say 45 percent today is from mm. solar that is very impressive and to think you know another decade or so that could be up to well i don't know well, 70 80
1: yeah and it needs to be 100 percent by 2050 and you know uh at the moment, it would seem perfectly possible to get from where we are now to 100%. Uh, whereas when we were down at 5% or 4 or less, yeah, I don't think it was an easy sell. You know, selling the idea of investing in a wind turbine, you felt like you were uh, sort of uh, trying to hold back a, a herd of elephants with a, you know, with a kazoo. Um, and now, no, the tide has turned. Um, you know, we, we could still do more. We should be investing much more in tidal. We should be investing much more in onshore wind than we are. And hopefully that will change now the moratorium has come off. We should be seeing still a lot more solar. You know, we can build a lot more solar. Um, and so all of that can happen and the things that you need around it to keep the grid stable. Um, and it's all possible. And it's all affordable. Uh, so, yeah, that that that's now really the task is to keep people realizing that this isn't an expensive experiment in mitigating climate change it is the only option and we've got a limited period of time to get it done
0: yeah for sure what are your thoughts on likes so of geothermal as well because i understand is it the the eden project in cornwall yeah. are doing something at the moment where they've um, got something in place so they're going to get all their energy literally from the, the earth's core um, and i know up in and well, they are um, they've got a, a big push on that as
1: well yeah um, well, the Cornish one is actually from the fact that their rocks are a little bit radioactive. <laughs> wow! But, um, yeah. Uh, so yes, granite has a has a heat to it, um, and you can take that heat and use it. And, and we we invested initially in our geothermal project in St Austell, not far from the Eden project. Um, it's it's a question of for that one. It's a question of scale. So for Cornwall, I think it's a very good solution. They, they have a lot of hot rocks there um and i think what they're finding we didn't you know we invested in this sort of the early stage of that project it's a lot you know drilling down through four kilometers of granite is no mean feat um and yes it produces energy and that can be used locally and you know cornwall itself is already a very green uh generating county It has lots of wind lots of solar down there so uh, for me, it's it's one of the elements that should be considered, um, certainly wherever it can be done. Probably the, the the bigger use of that particular type of technology is really the level to which we should be moving as many homes as we can to ground source heat pumps, which are a more sort of manageable scale of technology for thinking about this rather than four kilometres down, you're only drilling down maybe 10 metres. Um and, you know, air source and ground source heat pumps are the things we will need to replace our gas boilers. And we do need to demystify that for people. We do need to make, help people understand that, you know, putting in a new gas boiler maybe in 10 years time won't be a good decision because you're a bit like buying a diesel car around that time. You won't be able to do it after a certain point. Um, and certainly the, 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 the housing developments that we've been funding that are green have got a combination of solar and ground source Um, power, and that reduces the net energy demand on those homes by 93% in terms of pulling off the grid, um, and significantly reduces the carbon footprint of that home over its life. So that's doable now, that's social housing, that's not expensive houses, it's not some sort of grand designs, passive house, it's just a normal house uh, that someone's going to live in for, you know, for 50 years is social rent. And it's affordable now to implement those solutions. So I think we need to do more of that and and, and perhaps a little bit less. I I mean, I I think I mentioned tidal, but we shouldn't get distracted by the the really big scale projects and forget that a lot of that is about putting turbines under the water in places where there's a really strong tide. And those aren't big, you know, they're not spectacular. They don't transform the environment, and that's probably a good thing. But they get the job done. Um, so I think you know, we do need to... Sometimes you find in the green sector that engineers get very excited about certain solutions because they're engineering solutions and they don't get so excited about installing 15 million heat pumps. They should, but that isn't the same thing as a massive tidal lagoon, is it? <laughs> so I think you know, for us it's about identifying... The technologies that are doable now affordable now and scalable now and not putting too many bets on projects that could have a huge impact you know carbon capture these are not tried and tested technologies um, and they they're not proven that they will scale we've got scalable proven stuff you know onshore wind if if we were allowed to increase the tip heights on onshore wind, you could increase the capacity of onshore wind overnight. Because everybody who's got an onshore wind turbine would put bigger blades on, and there's a f- rule in physics, the cubed square rule. If you increase the area of a wind turbine, you get a cube of energy out. You know, for every every square foot, uh, you get a cube worth of energy. Um, it's exponential. So we we, we kind of we can do that now. So yeah, I, I I like things like geothermal. They get people excited. They, we've looked at a number of different things like we, we've looked at floating tidal turbines. These are all great projects. And, and the important thing is that they should scale.
0: Well, like um, you, say, you know, the the heat pumps in homes that like you say putting that into 15 million homes is, you know, when when we actually where we live, we looked at solar, but our position of our house just wasn't just wasn't feasible. So it was just not going to be a a good investment. But Mm. I think that, yeah, the heat pump seems like a a really wise, wise move for we can all be making. And I love that you're talking about the fact that the houses that you're investing in, you know, council houses and making them Mm. 93% more efficient over the lifetime. Like you say, it's not, this is available to all of us. And Mm. if, and I think is it in Elven, California now that all new houses after a certain, I don't know when it's been passed, but have to have solar in place in them.
1: Yeah. And they're, I think it's, and, 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 and yeah, we're improving the building standards here too, but I think that, you know, to some extent they always get watered down. I think it's really down to developers. Um, so we back developers who've got that enlightened view. And what we hope is there's a degree of both peer pressure and hopefully financial pressure over time. When people realize that the sort of short term model where you're going to build a house, which is the equivalent, you know, as to say, of buying a diesel car just before 2040, um, is that if you buy a house like that and it isn't up to code, it isn't well, isn't up to where codes are almost certainly going to be, and almost and, and and it isn't powered in ways that are almost certainly going to be banned at some point, then you haven't really you know, you've got you're not buying the best home that you could. So sometimes I think people need to look beyond the granite worktops and whatever else might attract them to that particular property. And the first thing you should check is does it how is it powered? is it sustainable and will it be illegal to run my house in 10 years time? (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, we don't really get that. And I still get frustrated if you look in the property pages and they still treat going green as if it was like buying a granite worktop. Yeah. And you know, it isn't that it's not going to pay back in the ways that you kind of expect (laughs) in the same way, actually your granite worktop never pays you back. But, it is we can get our head around a shiny worktop. We can't get our heads around a heat pump. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, where I live, we don't, we're not on the gas grid. Um, And I, I don't think at this stage it's, you know, I think the prices could come down a bit further, but, but actually most people around here, they probably won't be able to burn whatever it is they're burning in their homes, probably before the gas grid gets turned off. And, um, but no one's thinking about that and they're still building houses with kerosene boilers, which, which, you know, which is madness.
0: What does it cost to get a heat pump fitted into someone's house?
1: It depends how you install it and how much land you've got. So if you've got a, a reasonable sized garden and so on, um, you don't have to go so deep. So it's all about um, whether or not, and, and often, I think the ones we've been installing have been shared across properties. Um, so you, you drill down at a deep, a deep bore, um, as part of the new build. So I don't know how easy that is to install in an existing home. And I've seen some quite big numbers, uh, obviously where I live, there's a lot of marketing of these types of investment at the moment, the numbers feel quite big, like 20, 25,000 pounds. Um, I don't think that's ultimately where the price will net out and the technologies will get better as they get invested in. So at the moment, yes, it would be hard for someone to sort of justify that unless it was a shared heat resource for, say, a, a group of flats. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at it. and it you know, A lot of the incentives that were put into that area haven't yet had the effect of encouraging industry to reduce costs um, and they need to do that. We need to have an idea that heat pumps are going to come down in price, are become, going to become more efficient over time, and incentivise industries to do that, as we did with offshore wind. Yeah. yeah, it can be done. It can be done. But at the moment, there isn't a great deal of, sort of joined-up thinking, is my impression, in that world. It's still very much the fragmented world of uh, home heating, is a real barrier to any kind of change coming through there.
0: And then talking about um, your projects that you've got funded, is it, Mm. you got 42 projects currently funded?
1: Yeah. So just over a hundred million, uh, 42 projects. Um, as I said at the moment, the current one we've got is you actually can only view it if you're a sophisticated investor for various short term reasons. The FCA kind of took a view that property investing needed, uh, greater controls on it for a while uh which is a frustration um we don't believe that what we were doing should have been caught by those rules but it is um and so we're looking at the green social housing but as i said the, the main things we're now looking at are uh, we're looking at energy projects uh, particularly around anaerobic digestion and so on but we're also looking at uh, both broadband and farming sustainable farming projects um, because really we we can't dictate to the market. We 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 can provide investments where the market is making its own moves. And those are some of the sort of really sort of uh, hot areas, if you like, in terms of new things coming through. And then I would hope to see a, a rise now in the number of wind projects that are looking for investment uh, on the back of the ending of the effective sort of that on, on the back of them being awarded contracts are different. So, this is the, the markets, the mechanism whereby if you're building long term projects like wind turbines, which you know they, they generate for 20, 25 years, you've got a guarantee in terms of the, the cheap, the, the lowest price that you will be able to get for the energy. Um, and that does two things. Firstly, it, it kind of encourages people to bid down to that price, and secondly, it, it reduces the cost of the investment. In terms of its interest costs, because it's lower risk, which in wind reduces your cost of energy. So you've got kind of like this beneficial loop, uh, positive loop, whereby you reduce the cost of energy by reducing the cost of investing in that project, and at the same time, because it's a competitive market, those contracts were different. You encourage them to bring in innovations. That increase the efficiency and effectiveness of of the wind turbines themselves and there's loads of things that can be done with a wind turbine that make them more efficient and increase what their capacity factor so how much of their uh, energy capability is realized whether that's because of wind changing or but being more efficient in being able to use different types of wind conditions for example these, that's all. You know, wind turbines look quite simple on the outside. On the inside, they're quite complex machines, um, and they need quite careful management to get the most out of them. It's a bit. I, I'd, I'd liken it. It's a bit like sailing a boat. Um, you know, you, you, you can get the trim and the sails and the mast and everything just right for the wind conditions that you're in, and then suddenly the wind either dies or or gets stronger, and suddenly you're having to change all your sails and to get the same efficiencies it's the same with the wind turbine
0: interesting yeah like so saying, they have, yeah they yeah you look quite aerodynamic and quite simple from the outside but yeah there's a lot of technology underneath
1: yeah it's, the, it's to do with the way they feather the blades and all of this and point them in the right direction and, and know where the wind's coming from of course you know <laughs> um, that in itself is quite a bit of kit <laughs> just to have it pointing in the right direction um You'd think it would be easy, but it isn't.
0: (laughs) Um, One thing, well, I first found out about you guys from Positive News magazine. I had Lucy Lucy Purdy on, I think it was episode two of my podcast. And, you know, I get the subscription every few months comes through the door and I notice you guys. And then my... um, First of all, thought, right, I want to put someone from here on my podcast, but also I was interested in it from my side of things because I've banked with the Ecology Building Society for, for, yep. for many years, and they seem to be one of the highest rated uh, green sort of uh, banks that you can go with in terms of only lending money for people who are building sustainable green homes. Um, mm. And then seeing your side of things, we're actually – you know, not only are you doing good with the projects, but it also means, like myself and other people, they can make an investment into for you guys and see a good return and knowing exactly where their money's going, rather than you know they're just putting it into mm-hmm. well wherever and you know for you know you might. Um, Accidentally, be supporting fracking in some way if you've got your money in shares yep. in some way. So that's great. So, and how, how does it go about? Say, I wanted to make an investment with you. How simple is that to do that? And how 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 low can that investment be?
1: Well, the minimum investment is five pounds. So that's that's a relatively small amount of money. Um, so you you do two things really when you come to our site. I think the first thing is you might see that we've got projects available. So it isn't always the case because we're not a fund. So what you're doing as an investor is you're choosing to invest in a specific project that needs financing, and that will be over a finite period of time, maybe three months. So you come to our site, and we'll have some something available. It could be a wind technology project, it could be a new tidal project, whatever that is, and that will pay you a particular return. And and then basically you you need to sign up with us to join the platform, um, and that does you know two things. Firstly, we make sure that you are Able to understand the risks of investment, um, that this is an appropriate investment for you to be making. Um, And uh, and you have sort of therefore you have to pass a little little questionnaire test. And the second bit we do is we open a bank account in your name. Um, That will be where you can deposit cash to buy the debentures. And the debentures are it's another word for bonds, but these are issued by the companies or the projects. And they are invest their their they are you know they are um a form of debt, so you're lending money and they pay an interest return which is different for each project uh they pay that return over a period of time called it maturity, which is different again for each project could be two years five years ten years up to twenty years and And then you you deposit the cash that can be either in a general account or into uh, an ISA account. If it's an ISA, it's called the Innovative Finance ISA, which has been specially set up so that crowdfunding investors can get the benefit of tax relief on their investments. So all your returns are tax-free. Any capital gain is tax-free. And then the last bit is, uh, yeah, so you've got your cash, you've got your ISA opened. Then you see the investment you want to buy, and you buy anything up from and five pounds up and that investment might be offering five million pounds worth of debentures you'll take a little share of that and once you've bought the certificate and the project is going ahead because it's reached its minimum target you then get that investment and then every six months you're going to get a return uh, from that company in cash that you can then either choose to withdraw or reinvest through your account um, and so people build up a portfolio so usually in the first year people make one or two investments and then they slowly make more over time. So our average investors maybe made 10 or 12 investments over their life with us. And so they're earning money usually three or four times a year. They're getting a payment from different companies, which we provide them with along with an update about how the project is going. Um, And those are all held in the, in the website. uh, So you can kind of see what you've got and, and for some people, that might even be their pension because we've also got a self-invested pension product. And actually, Ecology themselves are investors through our site. They 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 joined our site as a customer. They've bought into some of our projects, so some of the return on your savings is coming from abundance projects already. Um, but I think you know the the broader kind of group we really really built around the retail investor, so that's where we focus. So the idea then as a retail investor, you should be able to see these different projects. And then if there isn't anything there to invest and you've got some cash that you want to deploy, you can buy from projects that have already been funded through the marketplace. So it's like a secondary market, like a stock exchange, and that will be buying direct from other customers, like eBay. So you set a price, you agree to the price, and then you tell Abundance that you've agreed it and we transfer the funds and the, the investment's over. Um, So, yeah, so of that 100 million, we've had about 25 million of returns, both in terms of capital and interest to those investors. And then about four and a half million of those debentures have been traded through the marketplace. So, yeah, it's quite a busy, busy site in a way, although we might have projects, uh, they tend to come in threes. For some reason, but we might have projects not the way, all the way through the year. There's always something that is happening on the site during the year.
0: What I like about it, it sounds really transparent, and you can see exactly mm. what's going on. And it doesn't sound and it sounds for someone who might not be into this side of things, you know, quite um quite clear and quite simple in some ways. Yeah, not necessarily the marketplace, but the idea of just setting up an account and go. I choose yep. that investment, and I'm going to put in five hundred pound. Then, mm-hmm. what kind of um, what kinds of rates do you tend to uh, have on, on them?
1: Well, there, as I say, yeah, it's a bit of a range. So, the lowest rate at the moment you will see on the site is around uh, about four um, percent, and that goes all the way up to fifteen percent. Now, obviously, a fifteen percent project is quite high risk or very high risk. You know, you, you don't get fifteen percent return on a on a debt you know, on a bond without taking some risk. Um, and But the, the bulk of investments, I would say, are in the sort of 6 to 10% kind of range. Um, when we're looking at local authorities, there's a very different type of risk. We're probably looking at returns between one5 and 2%, so quite different. Um, they're still investments. They're not cash. Um, you're not depositing with them. You're buying a bond, a long-term bond but it's going to pay lower, a lower return because a local authority is a much lower risk of default than a company. Um, and we hope that people kind of diversify, that they'll look at the local authority stuff for, for stuff that we want to keep secure and relatively uh, stable. And the other stuff is, is varying degrees of risk and return depending on what you're trying to do, use your money for in the long run. Um, so yeah, that, that's the sort of range we're dealing with at the moment. And I just want to go back on that marketplace point. You're absolutely right. That isn't our simplest (laughs) uh, part. And then, yeah, there's a, there's a project we're doing at the moment to come up with a better way of that working so that it's more accessible to people, particularly when they first join the site, because I think it could be a bit overwhelming to see all those projects and deal with it. But hopefully over time we'll make that easier. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Well, even, you know, you talk about even local authority 1% to 2% compared to what people are getting with the savings at the moment, and the bank rates mm. just dropped to practically zero. So yeah. people people's savings are going to be affected even more. So to make that investment in, as you say, a local authority, which is pretty solid and secure, um, but mm. then probably the wise thing would be to split it, wouldn't it, between four or five or six different investments, maybe one high risk, one at 6%, 10%, 2%.
1: Yeah, exactly. It depends what pot of money you're using, right? You might have a pot that you're willing to take some risk on. You might have a different pot. Maybe it's saving for kids' education. I don't know, saving for your kids' future. You don't want to take any risk on it at all, but you do want to make a bit of a return. Uh, and, and I think that that's so there is an element where we're looking at people's financial needs. And the other side is we're also looking at outcomes. And so, because the other thing you want is to know that your money's making a difference. Um, So we're also looking at how we can make that a little bit more real for people because at the moment we'll talk about the story of the project, we'll talk about what the investment's physically doing. But we don't have a very easy way of talking about impact because a lot of impact measurement is done on a very aggregated way because it's designed for funds and investments into companies like shares, holding shares in an index. We're investing into real projects. It's pretty obvious a wind turbine has a positive impact on the environment how much and how much is it better to do solar versus wind if you want impact? I don't know how you calculate that. So um, yeah, we're working at how we might make that a little bit more real for people um, so that they're not only sort of seeing their investment return and the projects getting completed and so on. They're also seeing the impact and uh, that that's kind of the next step, step, step from where we are now.
0: On the pension side of things, can people... Mm transfer from current pension providers into into this yeah yeah
1: they can although we would never advise if you have to be very confident that is the right thing for you so pensions are complicated investments actually in terms of the way that they work um so someone that has a pension that pays a defined benefit i.e final salary yeah, we would never be recommending that they switch to a SIP um, they they could still make that choice but we would never ever say that's a good thing to do. Um, where people have defined contribution, i.e. the amount you put in affects how much you get out, then I think considering if you've got a pension pot and you want to consider a, per- a percentage of that to go into very specific projects that are a different type of risk, then our SIP is kind of designed for that. Um, now some people have gone all in. I mean, I'm personally, my, my whole pension is in my own SIP now. Um, and I used to have a series of pension pots that I'd built up from different jobs and I put them all in one and then put them all into the SIP. But I would never say to someone that was a, that's a, you know, that's not necessarily the best thing for people to be doing. I think they should be looking at their pension pot and saying, can I invest in an ethical general pension fund? And can I put a percentage of my money into an abundance pot, which will get the same tax reliefs and it will get the same benefits but it's doing a very different type of investing. I think that, that's why people need to weigh up. Um, so for some, yeah, they've gone, they've gone all in. But uh, for the most part, it, people put up you know, a, a lump sum, which is a share of the sort of pension monies that they've got in different places.
0: And you could always, like from my perspective, I'm, like you're saying I've got a couple of pots from different jobs over the, over the years. So you might take one of the smaller pots and invest see how yeah. it is in five years' time and go, actually, I'm going to bring some more over as well
1: yeah and and there's a process for doing that you just transfer in and when you subscribe cash into a pension you obviously get depending on what tax relief you get you either get the 20% boost or the 40% boost immediately anyway on your on your savings so you know, there's lots of good reasons for using the pension system to save for the long term and our investments are long term investments but i think you know the risk of those investments you know for our new investors we're telling you not to invest more than 10% of your net investable assets in, in what you're doing and if you want to do more than that you need to sort of say to us that you want you you understand what you're doing and you you're a sophisticated investor so for the the bulk of my investors are in that uh, that sort of lower level camp for whatever reason their own personal reasons um so they're not investing more than a certain percentage of their money others no they've they've they put in large amounts and it's large amounts of their capital that they have are invested in green through us. Um, but like you say, you've also then got your know, savings in ecology or your savings in Triodos or wherever else. Um, uh, you know, we're not telling you that you should be putting all your money into one type of investment. What we're saying is we're a really interesting investment to sit in your portfolio and, and then you should consider how much you want to invest.
0: And how many investors have you currently got that are in, you know, from...
1: 6,700 in total at the moment that have done that hundred million. hundred um, million. There's slightly more accounts than that because some investors have designated accounts for grandchildren and children. Um, but the 6,700, you know, adult investors.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I like the idea of uh, putting something away for, you know, a child, putting something in for, you know, 10, 15 years. And when yeah. they get it when they're in the teenage years or when they're older. And yeah, that's that, feel, that feels good. And also, it's it's good from that child's perspective to know that the money that they're going to get back has actually been supporting mm-hmm. something. Um, like you say, you know, whether it's a... Oh,
1: a it so benefits their future, right? It's, it's their, um, their future is going to be the green future. <laughs> yeah. um, and they're invested in it. It's probably not a bad thing. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's win-win. Because you're investing in a better future, but you're actually getting a profit out of it as well. So Yeah,
1: that's the idea. And I think um, you know, we, we talk about win-win investing sometimes, and, and, and whilst it feels like a little bit of like a marketing cliche, generally people agree with it in our context because it is, they can see the two benefits sat next to each other, and they don't compete. The idea is that the financial return is not at the expense of the impact, and vice versa. You shouldn't be doing impact and getting a worse return than the market provides. Um, for the risk you're taking, this is the return. That impact that you're creating doesn't really affect that. Uh, you get that as well. And, uh, and it, those are difficult investments to find. Not all investments have that win-win, but, but we try and specialise in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's great. And I'm interested from a personal perspective, how did you... What brought you to set up uh, Abundance Investment in in 2012?
1: Um, It was two things. Uh, I worked as an anthropologist studying money and in the process of doing that helped create the sort of sister market to crowdfunding which is peer-to-peer lending. Um, So I was one of the team that founded Zopa and um, did a lot of research with people in their own homes looking at how they use money in everyday life and that was formed the basis for a lot of the work we did on Zopa. And then um, secondly, kind of wanting to do something in terms of sustainability and finance, wanting to do something new in terms of financial model. And I met up with uh, my co-founder, Carl Harder, um, who introduced for a mutual friend who said, you're thinking about doing green investing. Bruce is thinking about peer-to-peer lending and what to do next. And within about 30 minutes of meeting over coffee, we'd sort of set the kind of template for what we thought abundance might be. And then it took about a year to develop the concept further, and then two years working with the AE Financial Services Authority, as it was then, to get authorized to be able to operate as a business. It's quite a long process uh, because we were the first new truly new financial innovation they'd seen ever uh, since the FCA found, FSA, FSA was founded in 1997. Uh, so we were coming through their doors in 2009. And in that period, they'd never had someone new come to them saying we want to do a new form of retail investing. So they, they couldn't get their head around it. <laughs> um, so they're like, well, why, why do you want to be regulated? It's well, because we do. We think it's the right thing to do, but no one ever says that. <laughs> Mostly, people come to find out how they can't be regulated. Um, so, I, you know, so we were kind of breaking the mold. So, yeah, so that net brought us then in 2012. That's when we launched our first project. Exciting. Mm. And um, so, what Not about like a long time ago? But yeah,
0: <laughs> it's, it's really interesting to hear about your kind of key role in peer-to-peer finance as well. Um, because that's really shaking stuff up, taking out the middleman.
1: Yeah, that's the idea. Well, um, it was a team from Egg Bank who sort of was a more consumer-friendly, I guess, bank at the time. But we all got rather frustrated with Egg. Um, It rather weirdly became more about a credit card than anything else. And so we used to meet in a barn. Uh, The founder of Egg had a barn in Buckinghamshire, and we used to meet there every Monday. And everybody was sort of, this is, this is when the idea of the gig economy and working freelance was all rather new and exciting rather than mainstream. And so we were all in the gig economy. We were all kind of doing different things. And we decided it was good to be able to meet together and come up with ideas together and maybe work on different things together. And the, the basic agreement was if you did, you put a percentage of your money into a pot that would fund collective ventures. So it was called the New Barn Collective. And that collective, at one point in time, quite hard to nail down exactly when, we had a conversation. And out of that conversation came the concept of peer to peer lending. Um, and depending on who you are and where you are in that process, depends on how you remember the story. But as I remember it, uh, it was there were three of us sat down myself, Dave Nicholson, and James Alexander. And they were thinking about a new way of doing sort of uh, a kind of bond market individ- for individuals. And I was talking about the need to make money more social and more networked. And somewhere in that conversation fell out the idea of it being a peer-to-peer network. And what would that look like? And then we drafted it up. We, we, we kind of run it past some people. Some people thought it was a rubbish idea. Other people thought it was great. And then they founded. Then they went and got a load of money to invest in it uh and uh because in 2003 2004 there was a lot of money looking for new fintech things and really from then it it probably it was quite a slow burn for the first three or four years because people just couldn't really understand how this worked and then slowly people got used to it so by about 2008 when the crisis hit uh zopa was growing pretty quickly um and then post the crisis it really came into its own and then it became regulated itself in 2014 so we've kind of come a long way from 2003 04 to where we are now it's yeah it's just over 15 years and they've done i don't know 3 billion i think cumulative uh lending um and uh yeah it 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 certainly as i say two things one it hasn't grown as quickly as i thought it would I thought it would catch on more quickly than it did. But almost where it is now is a more diverse and interesting sector than I ever imagined. So uh, the Zopa model may not be the biggest or the most dominant, but the that's funding circle really. But, but where we've ended up with crowdfunding and peer-to-peer lending is a much more interesting environment than I think we ever really thought when we were coming up with the original concept.
0: Sounds exciting. Quite a, quite mm. a journey that you've gone on there in the past yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, a long time. Yeah, I was what 33 when that started. So, yeah, it was um and the world was a different place. We were all on MySpace. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time. I remember I remember we called it eBay for money because eBay was the kind of new kid in town and was very exciting and growing and and we said it's eBay for money. And uh and, oh, and I could have said MySpace for money and it probably would never have got funded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when did PayPal come about? Was that around the same time?
1: Well, PayPal fell out of uh, eBay, didn't it? So, yeah, about the same time.
0: Yeah.
1: I, you, you know, I, I, yeah, that was the sort of silicon bubble was just, just growing then. And, and I think Zopa for a little while got distracted by that. They went over to California. They wanted to work with the big tech companies. That didn't work out because regulation in the US is very complicated and not very supportive of new ideas. And so in the end, they came back to the UK and we grew it from there. And Now there's a global market for peer-to-peer, which is in the hundreds of billions, um, you know, all across the world. Um, and Zopa is the start of all that. Um, but uh, it's unclear where it will end up, I think, because it's it's now evolved you know, into these different species of finance because in each... The, the one th- although finance is global, regulation is very local and particularly for retail investment. And so you get these different ecosystems. And so what works in the UK doesn't necessarily work in France or Germany or Italy or the US. Um, so you, you don't see these big rollouts as you would with, say, Facebook, for example. Mm. You know, the way we do social media is much more homogenous the way we do money is hugely fragmented. And you see that though- No. <laughs> because money is social. You know, we don't, I think the crisis, the 2008 crisis was an attempt, came out of an attempt to globalize money and make it the same everywhere. And when you do that, you create these unintended consequences that, one person's attitude to debt is not the same as another's. One person's attitude to paying off their mortgage is not the same as somewhere else. But if you carry those assumptions across, it can, it can really catch you out. And we learned that the hard way with egg, we tried to launch a credit card in France and it failed and it failed because we made it work like a credit card in the UK. And we thought, well, what they need is the UK model imported into France. And French people were like, what is this? This is not a credit card. This is something else. And yeah, it didn't, it didn't work at all. And so um, y- you aren't dealing with, although the words are the same, you're not dealing with the same meanings. So what it means to be in debt in France or Germany or Holland is different to what it means to be in debt in the US or Asia or Russia. You know, um, if you want an interesting culture of money, you go to Russia. Uh, They have three types of money. They have uh, white money, which is the money you earn from your main job. Black money, which is how you buy a house from the mafia. And grey money, which is your second job, because your first job doesn't pay very much. So, um, yeah, uh, and and they're fully, you know, that's how money works. They have three different types of money. You pay tax on white money. Uh, you pay a different type of tax on black money because <laughs> that's uh, that's not the world you want to get involved with in Russia. And and grey money is a reality. You know, grey money is what we would call cash economy, but in in Russia, it's not. It's just normal economy. Wow, that is fascinating. And I um, think so. So yeah, carry on. No, um,
0: and that that's really interesting what you say about you know the idea of trying to launch a credit card in France, it didn't work. And, and I think that can be mm. often the approach. When you look on a government level, when everything becomes so centralized, I, I, mm. you know, then trying to make decisions for someone who lives the other part of the country. It's like, actually, you know, I think we can potentially move to, we'll ideally move towards decentralization of power, give more power back to to local authorities, yeah. local areas. And then from that, because they're the she was like the best people to make the decisions what's in their interest, rather than being told what they what they should have.
1: I think so. It's definitely about democracy. I think some of the democratic deficit that we're suffering from comes from that centralization. that people don't feel represented by a parliament that is hundreds of miles away and seems to talk a different language. Um, despite sending an MP to it, You know, that doesn't seem to cut it for most people. So, yeah, I agree. I think it's also, I think, that the attitudes we have and our responses to these problems are different in different places. Um, so again, a one-size-fits-all solution doesn't really work, because it, it 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 imposes values on people that they don't necessarily share. And I think if you're in Westminster, you kind of assume everyone thinks a bit like you, until they don't. You know, and I think the crisis is the you know, the Corona crisis has shown that. You know you might think you're making perfect sense saying social distancing, but how other people interpret that is completely unpredictable. Uh, You might tell people it's okay to go out and get fresh air. What you didn't realize is everyone would have the same idea and all go to the park, you know? (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's sort of simplistic, but I think there's a, there's a more complex set of unintended consequences around the way we're making decisions about our future and our politics, which are the same and our money. Um, They assume if I give you a five pound note that you'll have the same value on that five pound note as I will, that will be true. We both value it at five pounds. The values that we put on it are completely different. And I think that that's the bit that causes things to be come unstuck. And most economics deals with money as if the value is always understood as the same as neutral. But, and, and, but economics has never had a very strong relationship with values. And so, yeah, we, we find our, I think at the moment our economics isn't working because it isn't able to deal with real, the real world very well. (laughs) And the real world has come in with the black swan event that it doesn't, can't compute what is the economics of this <laughs> what is the economics of complete standstill economy nobody knows so yeah and if they th- if they say they know they're making it up
0: <laughs> and I think as we talked about in the beginning it shows how fragile everything is and yeah. there's not much strength and resilience in the actual systems and all the, the system is built on everything just moving forward and growing and yeah you know, I came across a documentary a few years ago called Happy, and it really delved mm. into what makes us, you know, as a society on a human level, what are our needs, what gives us fulfillment. And once you actually earn over a certain amount, like once you've got everything provided for you, you know, the difference between 40K and 400K, there's not much more happiness between there the as such. No. Um, and I think that I can't remember the actual state around the world, but they actually, they measured, they didn't have gross domestic um, product. It was based on gross domestic happiness. So mm-hmm. the entire society was built on what makes us happy, not on what actually is going to make more money, what's going to increase it. And mm-hmm. it, every time you put on the news, it'd say, oh, you know, the sees this, the sees that. And it doesn't really mean that much to a lot of people on a whole, no. other than for when they come to retire and if their pension pots are in there. So it seems mm. like we could potentially go for a paradigm shift through all of this as well to us on an individual level realizing what makes us happy, what of our needs, and potentially shift us in a different direction. But maybe that's me being super optimistic, or we'll see.
1: Yeah, I think most people are going to go to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to go to the but pub. after that,
0: after that. Talk yeah. about these things at the pub. Exactly exactly
1: that'll be it um i i agree i think i mean to to be sure it is resetting people's values um and and the thing about this like you said it's not going to be just a week i think it was just a week people can live in the bubble and pretend it's not happening but if it's three months or six months that this drags on for then no by the end of that we will be changed and let's hope that the narrative that comes out is not a selfish one, that it's one where we start to realize that we are interconnected and interdependent, and that if we want people to put their lives on the line and be the doctors and nurses that make us better, we have to pay them and If we want hospitals to be available when we need them in a crisis, we have to build them. They don't, you know, I know we've not won up 4,000 beds in the Excel center. You know, that isn't really a solution in my view. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, and I think the last bit is that when people's lives are turned upside down by external exogenous type shocks, we shouldn't judge them. Um, and we should help them because we were all that person at one point this, this year, everybody, big or small, you know, either they lost 50% of their money on the stock market in the last two weeks, or they just lost their job with no notice. And their company, their business just closed without any warning. Um, and I think that is going to be the thing that makes people realize that they're more reliant on society than they thought they were. So, and that our civilization doesn't come from being the best version of myself. Civilization comes from the society that gives me the choice to do that. And and maybe uh, it will wake us up to that. I don't know. Um, I, I It's the classic one of the people who are very meritocratic because meritocratic people tend to have gone to private school and <laughs> had a lot of advantages. And they, their confirmation bias deletes all those as if they were the norm because all their friends have the same advantages. So like, well, I did perfectly well. Look at me versus my friends. When I, when I go to my school reunion, I've done better than them. And it's like, yeah, and then let's compare yourself to all the people who didn't have all your advantages and then, and now how do you feel? You know. So I think it's this, it, it, maybe it will prick the bubble. Maybe it will make people realize that their world is not the world, yeah, um, and right. uh, that the the idea of and that someone in a different world isn't somehow well, that's their you know that's a function of their choices or their bad judgment or their morals or whatever. It's a function of it's a it's a it's a lot of it is who where you were born and and, and how much money did you have when you were born. Um, yeah, that's a proven thing in terms of health, by the way. You know, if you want to get health insurance, if you have your health insurance, 95% of your health outcomes that they are insuring against come from your postcode. Not even, and that's a postcode down to, I think, four, four digits of the six digits on the postcode. Mm. That will predict your health outcomes. No matter how much exercising you do, no matter how, you know, all the stuff that you do to live longer and be healthier, your postcode crazy mad 95 percent of it's your postcode the five percent you can do something about (laughs) so
0: so location 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 is key then
1: absolutely yep you want to be born in a really healthy postcode
0: (laughs) one thing i'd like love to get your insight on is in terms of like education and how we should be educating children on money as such like i think back Mm. to school i had maths of course which was you know key but actually about money it doesn't seem Mm. like that was kind of built into it and as soon as you leave, you leave university anything you know you're out in the real world and it can be a shock and i think if we were making people giving them more skills and making more resilient and empowering them more from that place then Mm. it feels like we're going to have a better society in generations to come
1: Yeah, and it's not educating them in finance. So at the moment, we educate teenagers, essentially, about credit cards and debt. Um, But we don't educate them about how money works. Um, There's actually a really good book that does a pretty good job. Uh, Dorling Kindersley have a book about money and how it works. Um, I would recommend as a first thing for, for kids to look at. It's a little bit, I'd say a sort of, it's a sort of 12 to 16-year-old type book. Um, but I think, no, we don't. We don't teach people about money. And I think one of the things that, that, that I've been thinking about and starting to ask whether we can get funding for is, 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 is actually having... Because actually you need to teach different things. So I think you need to teach people about money and how it works. Because how do you understand what the Chancellor is saying if you don't understand about money? If you're if you're listening to the budget speech and you're just listening for whether or not you're you're going to have to pay more for a pack of cigarettes, that's because you're not understanding how money works. And um, so there's the first thing: it's like the public understanding of money and finance, and someone whose whose job it is to really ensure that, like a you know like a poet laureate, you know, it, it's kind of the same kind of deal. The second bit would be that um, uh, actually introducing finance and money into more curricula of other subjects so sociology geography um, economics does not study money Um, so (laughs) because the people who actually study money the most are mathematicians and weirdly some physicists so you know the, the people who are building these quant trading things that keep making the markets go weird They're physicists and mathematicians. They're not economists. Um, And so they don't really have an interest in money. They have an interest in numbers and statistics. Um, And a lot of our decision-making about money is being driven by people who are pretty divorced from the things we're doing money for. They're just looking at money as if it was a prime number that you were trying to find or a, a, a theorem you're trying to prove not an outcome you're trying to create so so if you want that you got to build sociologists give them the tools to think about money you've got to get historians thinking about money you've got to get um you know novelists writing about money english students um so for me it's actually embedding it more into the curricula of these other subjects rather than money itself being a subject um for me, money being a subject is a bit like saying that language is, is, is only the preserve of ling- linguistic students. Uh, money is something that all subjects should have a view on, but they don't. Um, and how you integrate that is, is a bit of a challenge.
0: Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? We've got a school system, which a lot of people would suggest is still base running off the industrial revolution kind of model. And I wonder whether there's needs to be a more holistic approach to, to educating kids and, and a different way of learning, like particularly saying about money, but also health and well-being, having that more int- integrated into it as well, having people growing their own food. how You know, look at it now. Things are popping up now, oh. how um, people, I'm sure off the back of this, people are going to think, well, I want to start my own uh, garden and grow, you know, because mm. how things are going to unfold, so...
1: Well, absolutely. Yeah, I think. So there's, a, there's an element of self-reliance in that. I think there's also, I think it's also, I've got five children. I've sort of watched them go through the various incarnations of the sort of uh, personal responsibility and citizenship kind of studies. Um, and what's interesting is how little things like tax and social responsibility are really talked about it's a lot of it is about personal development and mental health. Not very much. It's about, I don't know, uh, voting or <laughs> uh, how local authorities work or, you know, getting involved in things. It, 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 it seems to be rather absent from the curriculum at the moment. Um, maybe that just reflects the politics that we're in. But I think the the thing I'm, I'm not seeing from children is they don't come out of school with an understanding of, the state um, and an understanding of the debate between market and state or the, the, they, they they sort of they're, they're given some tools for thinking about being a public individual, but a lot of them are to do with being private individuals and uh, th- those are the bits where I think we've probably got the balance wrong. Why have people turned around to these rules and edicts about being locked down in the way that they have because we've educated them for the last 20 years that they are in charge of their own destiny and they make their own choices. And that's a good thing. Um, so, so when we tell them they can't have those choices, they rebel. And they don't understand. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like we're having to reprogram people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah getting forced forced to be reprogrammed as well so you've yeah got, so you got five kids um what you know must be great for for them to have someone with your you know wealth of information when it comes to finance and money what you know can you ever think of a what's the best <laughs> advice you might have given them on
1: money you- um yeah don't do what i did <laughs> 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 don't do what i do do as i say yeah um I don't know. I think um, the thing I help them do is demystify some of the choices, perhaps that they think they've got. Uh, student loans is a good one, um, you know teaching them that repaying that is not the thing you should do. It's not a debt. It's been called a debt, but it isn't really a debt. It's a tax. And if you think of it as a debt, you'll do the wrong thing. So, I guess, yes, sometimes I will introduce you know those categories that we put around money aren't always the most useful. you know the way we privilege savings over investing, for example, uh, savings are not really useful for the long term; they get eroded by inflation by definition, so you know if you're not taking risk, you're not getting return, if you're not getting return, inflation is eating it and so things like that, yeah, maybe I've, I've tried, but you know, in the most part, I, I think their main challenges are the fact that they're coming into their adult world on a, in deficit already. They're in debt, or at least they've got this deficit of tax, and then, and then they're in deficit because their first job won't pay for everything they need. And we have an economy where your first job is not sufficient to live on. Um, which seems wrong, and it 's the case, and it 's driven by two things and what I try to explain is don 't feel bad about that it 's the system, not you it 's a system that has given this massive tax incentive to the value of property, such that now you don't, you can 't afford rent because rents are a function of the value of properties, and it 's got to the point where that Behavior, you know, the, the ownership of property has has is extracting so much money from young people now that they can't afford to live. So the reason why you feel poor in your first job is not because you, you're doing badly. It's because the system is against you. And you, you either play that game or you don't. So I think that, yeah, that's probably where I'd, I'd sort of focus for people. is like, actually, it, it feels a bit horrible. Um You know, we were supposed to be not in a recession at, you know, this is winding back to the dim and distant two weeks ago uh, is, you know, we've had 10, 12 years supposedly of unparalleled growth and yet nobody's benefited from it. Um, and you shouldn't feel bad because nobody has benefited from it. It's a bit of an illusion. And arguably the virus has sort of dragged down the curtain and showed that it, you know, the wizard of Oz is behind the curtain pulling levers and they don't really do very much. They just make a lot of noise and thunder and produce very little in terms of value. So yeah, I I think that's the main thing I'm sort of teaching them. I wouldn't presume to tell them how to run their lives. I I can barely keep up with what social media channel they're on.
0: (laughs) I bet, especially the five of them.
1: Yeah. And they're all different ages. They go from uh, 11 up to uh, 25. So they're, they're all, you know, I've got uh, whatever that is. That's not millennial, is it? Um, the one after millennials. Uh, and then all the way down to whatever this generation is going to get called.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, uh, you mentioned a book before for Good for Teenagers. What book would you recommend or resources for people who are more, you know, out in the, in the working world that could help them to get more of an understanding on money?
1: Um, there aren't many. Um, there are some quite good histories of money that I think are quite useful to read. Um, there's a social life of money by Nigel Dodds, um, which will kind of jolt you a bit into thinking we've never been here before. Um, it tells the really interesting story of when the Irish banks in the 1970s went on strike and everyone thought the end of the world would happen. And instead people used pubs as banks and it worked perfectly well. The economy functioned. It didn't, it didn't actually drop a beat. Wow. Um, so yeah i think that 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 that's quite an interesting book um and actually i'm trying to write a book about crowdfunding and money um uh whether whether we'll get get through to that but i think you know actually there isn't really that many go-to kind of texts i would say unless you have a sort of research interest in which case you start with there's various sociologists that write very well about money and anthropologists so you've got um Viviana Zalitzer, you've got Bill Maurer, you've got, um, who else is there? Um, They're the the main ones, but I think, you know, and then, but those are quite theoretical books. Um, And I think, so the sort of theory of money and and, and so on has been very unfashionable in academia for a very long time and is just now starting to come back. Um, But then in terms of books that talk about money, um, actually, there's, it's, it's, it is relatively few. It isn't, I don't know, it must be a very hard book to pitch. <laughs> um, and I think there's a book that could definitely be written about the myths of money, the things we say about money that actually aren't true. Like, you know, there's money in the bank. There isn't any money in a bank. You know, they don't hold money. The money that you have in a bank, the cash, is actually in the Bank of England. Um, is deposited with the Bank of England because banks aren't allowed to hold money. Um, they don't work like that. You know, uh, building societies do, but not banks. Um, so you know the you know building societies lend your money. You know ecology as a building society they lend your money that you've you've lent to them. A bank doesn't. A bank in a bank you're something else. Uh, you're a creditor to a bank, uh, and you're number three creditor behind. Bondholders and shareholders, which is why you get no return. <laughs> so you're taking the lowest risk you know, you're not the first to lose the money, that's the shareholders, then it's the bondholders, then it's you. Um, so when people moan about banks not paying interest, it's, it's because you're not taking any risk um, and and so I think the, these are the sorts of things which I think yeah, we need a bit more discussion about you know and understanding of because the whole you know when the crisis happened, I was in Kingston and the first bank run. In, in the UK for 100 and whatever it was years, 120 years, happened in Kingston, in the Northern Rock. And it was all because a few people couldn't get in the branch and started queuing out the door. And then other people saw it. And they all then started queuing to find out what was going on. And then that, became, that went on the BBC News, and by the next day we had a bank run. <laughs> so, no, Without the internet, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have anything. It was just, have you seen there's a queue outside Northern Rock in Kingston? And the BBC turned up and, and filmed it. And that was it. That was the bank run.
0: <laughs> so if the BBC didn't turn up, it would have been all right.
1: Well, it wouldn't have gone quite so quickly. Yeah. We wouldn't have gone to ATMs closing down in 24 hours if, if that hadn't gone quite so, in inverted commas, viral.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's the same a bit at the moment in terms of if people were panic. You know, if all of sudden, I was thinking about this the other day when we went to the supermarket, if all of a sudden people were running into the supermarket, like yeah. real or not, then everyone else would be like, I need to run in as well. I need to get what I can. But actually mm-hmm. it's quite calm and I'm quite um admire you know, as a as a collective so far. Now I don't know when this actually podcast goes out what what the world's going mm-hmm. look like. Um but it's quite um yeah, it's quite reassuring at the moment. People are being pretty calm about it.
1: Right. Okay. I, I've not. I've not ventured to a supermarket yet. I've been biding my time. <laughs> but uh, the last time I went in, one, it looked like it had been ransacked by the Vikings. So. Um... <laughs> yeah,
0: the one actually that the one I did go in to Stainsbury's recently, and it did. It was, you know, it was pretty decimated. The shelves, but I, surprisingly, between it all, I could still get ninety-five percent of what I needed. Yeah.
1: Um, but anyway, that's right
0: by the by. But you know well, what? that's the point. It's been really good talking to you today and to get in all this information because hopefully by this getting out there, it's going to educate more people about money and finance, but also that actually people can, you know, where they can put their investments and they can actually do it from hmm. their eyes and to see where it is, be investing in green technologies and see a decent return on it as well. So, you know, there's, hopefully yeah. this will open a few people's eyes to it. And I know the climate's a bit challenging at the moment, but, you know, things will get better and it's about planning for the future and Looking further ahead, so um, yeah, it's... exactly.
1: No point getting to the end and having nothing, yeah, yeah. And um, so just yeah, one question, point getting to the end, sorry, yeah, Carol.
0: No, it's okay. Just one question, I'd love to ask all my guests is so this podcast is about sharing what good people are doing, and you've obviously been doing that for longer than eight years, um, or more. And um, what advice mm. would you give to someone who's looking to go out and do their own bit of good in the world?
1: Um, I, I think. There's a, there's a lot of myths about being an entrepreneur, which are about, you know, making money and being successful in terms of building a business and selling it. Um, I think if you want to be successful doing good, you, you, you find something that you want to, that no one else is doing and, and needs doing, but that you want to do yourself for a long time, you know? So don't look at entrepreneurship as simply a function of get rich quick. Entrepreneurship can build very long-term things and arguably you know the biggest entrepreneurs the victorians they built businesses that have lasted for hundreds hundreds of years right um they're the real entrepreneurs um it isn't and i I think we we put a language around it so don't feel afraid of the idea of being an entrepreneur to do good because it doesn't mean that you have to be richard branson actually you you can you don't have to be greedy you don't have to make a billion um, you can be an entrepreneur and you can continue being an entrepreneur your whole life without ever making any, you know, huge amounts of money, but you can do good. And I think that sometimes people who feel they're doing good kind of feel that they should push away that world. You know, don't be an entrepreneur. Don't be into capitalism. Capitalism is, is a tool. It's a, it's a way of getting things done. And you have a choice what you do. It is not a given that capitalism always produces unfair outcomes. It's we are the ones who produce the unfair outcomes. It's a political choice. We always say investing is a political act. Investing is about deciding what world you want to be in in the future and and having a say in it because you've made an investment. Uh, And I think the same is the case in terms of your job or your vocation. It's about having a say in what the world looks like because you're doing it. Um, but don't be afraid of using the, the means by which people have done some pretty bad stuff to do good stuff. It, it isn't the case that you have to work that way. Um, you, can, you can employ good governance. You can be fair. Just don't be greedy. And I think that, that, that for me would be the one where, you know, that's what helps you do good. That's what helps you stay on the course and not get distracted. But there's a thing about finance in particular, which is there's always this easy road on the left. There's always the smooth path. And the other way is a complete minefield. <laughs> you have to go through the minefield every single time. The easy path is always there, though. It's very easy to go down it. But if you do, you lose your way.
0: That's really great advice. Um, if anyone is listening to this and wants to find out more about you guys, what's the best way that they can um, you know, make an investment or just at least delve into you guys a bit more?
1: Well, I think they go, our website is uh, abundanceinvestment.com. Uh, And we have lots of stuff there about the impact of our investments and you can kind of dive in and read the blogs and read about who we are and why we're doing stuff and and read about the investments we've already done. Um, And when you've done that, that might inspire you to make an investment yourself.
0: That sounds great. I'll be sure to include the links as well to what we've spoken about today and the links to, you know, your company and the books that you've, talking about I'll definitely be looking into some of them books myself as well um but Great. Bruce it's been a pleasure speaking to you today and I really appreciate your time and thank you there we have it guys there's today's episode with Bruce Davis from Abundance Investment wrapped up if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a few friends that will go a long way and if you listen to it on Apple Podcasts leave me a review it would be amazing it helps to get more of this podcast out to more people And as well, you know, I've got my Patreon page as well where you can support me if you want to become a member of that. And that helps me to continue to put these episodes out and potentially for me to be beginning to put them out even more regularly. So anyway, guys, until next time, have a good one.